0: our We Believe series by studying Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And this is a pretty important passage we'll look at over the next weeks. We've looked at all kinds of passages in all different places in the Scripture because this series that we've been doing is a series on theology and praxis. And by praxis, I simply mean the, the crux of everything we've been talking about over these past months is that what we believe as Christians is meant to shape life. What we believe as Christians is made to have a deep and lasting effect On our hearts. So when we say that we believe Jesus is risen and resurrected, that's just that's much more than a a dusty old theological truth that we talk about on occasion. That is a truth that God has given us so that we can experience life abundant on this earth and everlasting in the next. Every truth we study in the Scripture, everything we believe, has a profound. uh, It's it's meant anyways to have a profound influence on our lives. And so in the book of Ephesians, there's an interesting shift that takes place. This is an important segue in Ephesians chapter 4 from what Paul has just written about in the chapters preceding it. Paul's writing a letter to the church at Ephesus, a church much like ours. It looked differently and I'm sure had different expressions because it was a couple of thousand years ago. But the substance of that church is no different than the one we are in today. They were trying to follow Christ with their heart, their soul, and in their mind. And so in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out a lot of important theology. In fact, this is a common way Paul writes. Oftentimes in his epistles, he's he's talking about the things that we believe about God. And then at some point, he makes this strong transition into how the things we believe are really meant to shape how we function on this earth. And this book is no different. He's already talked a good bit about God's purposes and how he has worked in the world through Jesus Christ. And he's driving home this point time and time again that when Jesus died for us and was raised from the dead, he offered us this amazing salvation, this, this individual relationship that we can have with Jesus. And part of what it means to follow Jesus, part of what it means to receive Jesus in this way, is that we know we have an unrivaled value in life, that we have an unrivaled worth in life, that we can be given an unrivaled quality and fullness of life. No matter what we endure on this earth, the scripture teaches us that the goodness and the grace of Christ can transcend all of our circumstances and allow us to thrive in them. And so what, what this means is no, no matter what we're facing... To be in Jesus means we can face those things with confidence. And when we hurt, Jesus hurts with us. And when we laugh, Jesus laughs with us. And when we celebrate, Jesus celebrates with us. And when we suffer, Jesus suffers with us. To know Jesus means that he walks with us every step of the way on this earth and in the life that follows. And as we're going to see in a couple of moments, at least I hope you will see, this amazing individual opportunity Jesus gives us to pursue him, This individual relationship, we would say in Christ, is actually meant to be much more than just an individual relationship with Jesus. It's meant to be connected to a corporate unity, a corporate love for each other, the body of Christ, the church, and the mission of Jesus in the local church. Simply put, following Jesus alone is not the end game of the church. Following Jesus in community with other people for the sake of the mission of God is the end game. And in these verses, Paul describes what God desires for the people of his church to be and look like. And it's very important that you hear these two words. Being always precedes what we look like. Being always precedes doing. Simply meaning, over these next weeks, we're going to talk about what we believe about the church. And connected to the church is a lot of doing. There's mission and action and, and work. All kinds of things God has set us apart to serve him within this world and to serve, uh, to, to serve his causes. But I don't ever want you to forget that what precedes the things we do in Jesus, or for Jesus, that can never be disconnected from who we are in Christ. And he tells us here, or at least we'll begin discussing what he tells us, what God's expectations of us are in the church family. Today I hope we'll see that to, that to uh, believe in Jesus, to say that we believe something about Jesus, at some point has to start shaping how we live individually and together as a church family for Jesus. So it's not just enough to follow him alone. We follow him together. And over these next weeks, we're going to look at what we believe about the church. What is needed for a church to flourish in a way that honors God and blesses people. And what's really great about this part of the book of Ephesians is that it takes so many of the things we have already studied in this series and deeply marries them to our everyday lives. Paul makes strong applications to our belief shaping our lives. And today we're going to look at verses three through six. We'll begin. We're going to look at this for a couple of weeks, but we'll look at them today, and we're going to see how one of the main ways we value each other and build build God's church family here on earth is when we learn to value each other. One of the best ways we can honor God in his church is to love each other in deep and meaningful ways. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you today. We believe the church family Our church family, everyone that exists on the planet right now, and those that will follow us, those that have preceded us, we believe the church family is a place to love each other like God first loved us. It's one of the main missions of the church, that God's love for us is meant to be displayed in the way we treat each other and care for those that are around us. And I'll reread to you Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6, because there we see some very strong language from Paul. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Very strong appeal to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit so that we can do and function in the things that he's just mentioned here. And here the scripture is pretty clear that our devoted love to Jesus, our devoted love to Christ, is supposed to create a unified spirit of love for each other. The way we understand Christ's love in our own lives, the, way, the things that he has done for us on the cross, the way that he lived for us before the cross, these things are made or done so that we can love each other in his spirit forever. In fact, it's fair to say that while we'll look at several traits that need to be present in a church family that honors God, they are all built on the foundation of living in and displaying Christ's love to others. The love of Jesus is central to everything we are, everything we understand about who we are before Jesus, and every way that we carry ourselves in this world. And that love is not meant to be owned on a personal level and disconnected from the world. It's actually meant to be something that we display to others when God provides us the opportunity. And this really makes a lot of sense, because just before Paul wrote this in chapter 4, he really emphasized how Jesus' life-changing love was sent into the world through Jesus. And now he brings this love to bear on our daily living by reminding us that the way God has chosen to continue showing that love to the rest of the world is through the unified spirit of God and his people. What I'm saying here, what I'm regurgitating from what Paul has said is that Jesus showed his love to the world when he died on the cross and he redeemed us because of it, those that choose to follow him. And now the way he chooses to continue to display that love in the world is through you and I. He's not going to go to the cross again, that's done. But he wants us to tell the story of the cross through our lives. So the way that God spreads his love in the world now is through you and I. That's an amazing responsibility. And this is why he uses the word one, the Apostle Paul, seven times in these three verses. That word is the most significant word in this section of Scripture. He uses it repetitively for a reason. He's trying to communicate to us that no matter where you look in the Christian faith, whether it is to God in heaven or his people on earth, you're supposed to find a selfless, devoted, unified, loving community of people who deeply treasure each other because they have had a life-changing experience with Jesus, who showed all of us just how much he treasures us by dying for us on the cross and resurrecting himself so that we can live. This is an important truth that our minds begin to think about as we prepare to celebrate Easter in a few weeks. And this is why I say it can't be the kind of thing that we only think about once a year. The cross was meant to be a forever event. The cross was meant to display a a perpetual love in us that knows no boundaries. Jesus' love poured out for us is meant to be showed for others whenever we have the opportunity to do so. And this powerful love in us stems from the very love of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have an amazing love for each other. They deeply care for each other and value each other. They are unified in who they are and what they do. And because of this, we read that that same Spirit that exists in them now exists in us. Now granted, you need to hear me when I say this, it exists in broken people, meaning we cannot perfectly display the type of love and unity that God the Father, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit have with each other. But I also wanna say that in their strength, with with their power in us, with us deeply believing and trying to apply these truths in our lives, we are able to live in this unity. We are able to display it in a way that not only honors God, but causes our lives to flourish in the lives of those around us. God desires that the people of the world see him through us and the way they see him through us is in the way that we treat each other. So just look at how these verses show us that our oneness with each other is supposed to reflect the oneness of God. It's one of the greatest images that God displays in the world to reveal himself to the world. Just a quick walkthrough of these verses. In verse four, we see that even though the church spans the globe, it spans time, it spans history, every tribe, tongue, and culture. The church knows no boundaries when it comes to ethnicity or gender or race. The love of Jesus is applied to all. It goes everywhere. And wherever Jesus roots himself, churches tend to spring up. Every, every uh, tribe, every tongue, every culture, no matter how diverse we are as people around the globe, past, present, and future, those of us who are in Christ are one people. That's what we learn here in Ephesians. Because we're given life by and unified in Jesus's Holy Spirit. While there are many local church families, including this one, there is only one ultimate body of believers, because we are all engelled. Uh, excuse me, there's no gelling in the Spirit of God. There is an indwelling by Jesus' Holy Spirit. Really bad use of a word there. At the end of verse 4, we learn that because we are all indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we're all united by the same gospel hope for this life and the next. Okay. So because we're, we're diverse and unique, We've lived at different times in history, God's people. There is this commonality that defines us all, and it is the power of His Spirit. In verse 5 we read, we are all one in the same faith, in the same baptism, under the same Lord. And this means that even though the church is historically a beautifully diverse living being, taking different shapes and sizes, wherever God plants are in the world, God has brought a unity in that diversity. And I want to point out, uh, this wasn't even intentional, the way this happened today, but it is very important to point out what we just did in worship is pretty significant. I don't know if you realized how many streams of worship intersected themselves this morning and what we did. We sang modern worship, stuff that's been written recently. We sang songs that have come from our historical hymnals. We sang one song that is cut from the gospel tradition of the African-American church this morning. All of these, all of these traditions show us that God's people in different ways have loved him around the world. It's an amazing truth, but what unifies all of these things is that the power of Jesus exists in all of us when we choose to follow him. And that's why I like to say there's an amazing unity in our diversity. Because the tie that binds the past, present, and future people of the Christian church together is that we all believe in and follow Jesus as Lord. That is the profession of faith that every Christian must utter to know Christ in the way that he has offered himself to the world. We are all baptized then in his name, and we all place our hope in his coming again as we seek to build his eternal kingdom here on earth. And that's why in verse 6, Paul drives home this point, that to be a part of the church family means you have become a part of something much bigger than a weekend experience. Something much bigger than just your life, although it includes all of these things. To become a part of the ancient, present, and future family of God. That's what it means to become a part of the church. When we are in Jesus, we are connected with a host of people, past, present, and future. And we are all unified by this truth, that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and now in us all because of what Jesus did on the cross. So what this means is while on earth and throughout history, God's people have all congregated in different places and at different times. When Jesus returns and finally takes us home, every single person who chose to follow Jesus on this earth in the past, the present, and the future, we will be with each other for all of eternity. And Anytime I talk about this statement, I always mention what I'm about to say now. This is the essence of what heaven is. It's that we will be with God forever, with each other forever. That's part of what makes heaven heaven, is we are now permanently with him forever, where there is no more sin and no more pain and no more grief and no more loss and no more suffering. And part of what removes those things is the presence of God permanently with us and the presence that we have with each other. The beauty of that eternal family Please hear me when I say this. The beauty of that eternal family has deeply shaped our understanding of community here at Restoration. Our ecclesiology, our study of the church, our understanding of of how people relate to each other in the kingdom of God is deeply shaped by this idea. And that's why all of these one statements make the connection between how our individual love for God is supposed to create a corporately devoted love for each other in God's church. The church is literally meant to be Albeit an imperfect expression, but it's an expression of heaven. It's sort of a glimpse of foreshadowing of the way things will be one day when we in unity are with each other and sing and proclaim about the goodness and the, gl- the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Very important truth to hear from the Apostle Paul. It's one he writes about a lot, very strongly in Ephesians. And I'm very thankful for what he's written here. But anytime we talk about a truth that has followed Jesus, meaning a truth that's circulating the earth after Jesus has said it, I always want to come back to the origin of that truth. It does us well to know that even though Paul is writing about this in Ephesians, many years after Jesus, we know that he got this teaching from Jesus himself in John 17. That chapter is in a section of scripture that can almost be considered the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, There's this sort of long summary of Jesus' life, his last actions on earth before he goes to the cross. And in certain times th- over the years, we've looked at various aspects of this. Today, I want to look at this section very briefly in John 17, because it records Jesus' final deeds and his last words just before his crucifixion. Some of his last words, anyways. In John 17, 20 through 21, this will be behind me. I want you to read along with me. Just after, after the Last Supper, Jesus says as his final prayer on earth for his disciples, he utters these words. If you want to know why Paul is saying what he's saying here, it's because he knows what Jesus said here in John 17. Jesus says this. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. And he's talking about those following Jesus, those following him right in front of him. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. We're part of the who will. That all of them would be one. The folks he's talking to 2,000 years ago, the folks that are listening about Jesus right now, All of them would be one. And then he says, Father, in the same way you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world would believe that you have sent me. And that's why I said a moment ago that the very nature of unity, of love, the bond of the Spirit does not begin with us. It found its roots. And by roots, I mean this is a pre-eternal idea. This never didn't exist. God has always been in community with his Son and his Spirit like this. And what Jesus does here is he, he opens wide this invitation to become a part of that unity. He offers to us the same oneness that they have with each other. And he does it for a very specific reason. He says, so that the world would believe that you have sent me. Now, throughout history, if you have watched films in theaters like this or read books, any type of storytelling, what you'll find is that there's some common motifs that exist in the, in the stories that captivate us most. And almost always in any good story where there's conflict and trial, there is some person, some figurehead, who has some form of what we would call last words. And the idea behind last words in any sort of literary genre Especially one that's narrative in nature, that's telling the story with, with the kind of cosmic and epic themes that we migrate to as people. Stories of you know, success and failure and triumph and overcoming the great scenes and great victories in the battlefield. They're almost always preceded by, by somebody giving this last charge, this last speech. They start telling you what matters most to them. And the idea behind a last will or a last will and testament is they're imparting a critical truth they, need, uh, they believe you and I need to have before they, before they depart the world. Even the nature of a will in our world today is very similar to this. It's sort of the final utterance of what needs to take place in the absence of the person who wrote it. So there's tons of stories from film and culture that I can share with you that give us an example of this, but I share with you my favorite one, which is from one of my favorite books, uh, not books, excuse me, favorite films. It's a film called Saving Private Ryan. Most of you know I'm a super strong history buff in all parts of the world, and this film was probably one of the greatest depictions of the Normandy invasion that, that the big screen has ever seen, and it's an old film now. It's almost 20 years old, but there's this amazing scene that happens in it. Let me give you the backdrop. It's the story of a group of Army Rangers who are led by a guy named Captain Miller whose name is Tom Hanks, a very famous actor. And they are charged with this difficult and dangerous task of saving an Army paratrooper named Private Ryan, who's Matt Damon in the film. And he's somewhere behind enemy lines in in Europe, in Germany. In the film, Ryan is the last remaining survivor of four brothers who are killed during the war. And because of this, the U.S. government issues this immediate decree that he's got to be taken off the battlefield. In other words, they don't want all four of this family's sons dying in a field of combat. And so they issue this order to this band of rangers who then go behind enemy lines after D-Day to bring this guy back to safety. And what's interesting about this film is it's very true to form of what some of the wars in our world are like. They're often glorified in the big, f- the big screen, but they're very painful. There's tragic realities in these films, and that's what happens in this one. Almost all of the men in this film that try to locate this guy, Private Ryan, they almost all lose their lives. And eventually, the star of the film, Captain Miller himself, loses his own life in the process. Nobody escapes death in this film. And that's essentially how this film ends. It's a sobering end. But it really illustrates the truth of what we're trying to talk about today. You have this scene where Captain Miller is sitting on a bridge and he is breathing his last breaths in life. And he's talking to the unscathed Private Ryan, who has literally gone through this whole thing without receiving a shot or a scratch. And he tells him that he needs to earn this, two little words, earn this. And that's the only dialogue that takes place there. If you saw the film, you know exactly what I mean by this statement. It's sort of like a whole backdrop of ideas and thoughts and truths are communicated in these two words and the eye contact these two men have with each other. And in that moment, his last words are meant to communicate this incredibly serious truth that so many people died so that he could go home and live. And clearly, in that moment, he places this immeasurable emphasis on Ryan living his way, his life in a way that honors the service of those men who fell for him. His last words to him... Much like the last words in any epic poetry or films, they are without doubt his most important in that story. And in the film, what we see is they have the proper effect. Private Ryan understands this because as the film later reveals, it shapes every waking minute of his life afterwards. Those words are never forgotten and they become a life rudder for him. That is the purpose of a last word. They are meant to give you the final decree of what matters most in life. In this case, our rabbi, our teacher, is passing on to his followers the most important truths that he has brought them while he was living and the ones that they need to remember after he is gone. And now, with that importance of last words in mind, I want to connect some dots here as we wrap up. I'd like you to apply that logic to Jesus' last words in his prayer in John 17. Just before his death, he prays to his Father in heaven to make the loving unity that they experienced from him and shared with each other the defining mark of his people in the church. That's the beginning of what we're reading about in the Gospel of John. Paul is writing about the church of Ephesus, but the roots, the rumblings of that church take place in this moment. For the sole reason, he gives them these words, that our love for each other would be so God-honoring, so powerful and moving, that it validated Jesus' existence to an ever-skeptical world. Skeptical then and skeptical now. And the idea behind this is that, Our treatment of each other might even be the driving factor that leads some folks from skepticism to belief. And so you see, if you want to be used by God like that, if you want to understand the incredible significance God has assigned your life because of his son Jesus, if you want Easter to be more than just an hour and a half on a Sunday in a room like this, if you want to do something amazing for the body of Christ here at Restoration, and I hope you all do, it really begins by realizing that in Jesus We have got to deeply love and treasure each other before we can change the world or our circle of influence or even the people that we might consider. Maybe these are are relationships that we don't even know have significance in our lives yet. If you want to be hope and joy to your neighbor at work or your neighbor in your neighborhood, wherever you go, the grace of Jesus goes with you. And one of the ways that we can most significantly proclaim the love of Jesus to the world the grace we have experienced from him is in the way we love and treasure each other. Jesus' prayer reveals that the heart of God is for his church to be a place where he can show the people of our world the very nature of who he is through the way we love and treat each other. That's one of the reasons the church is on the earth. And so the bottom line in all of this is this. When we think about the church family, when we think about one of the things we believe about the church, we can never forget that the, the church is is not some abstract noun, entity, or organization. A proper understanding of what the church is, is a composition of people gathered for the common cause of following Jesus Christ. The church is us. The church is us now. The church is those who follow Jesus in the past who are no longer on this earth. The church is those that will follow Jesus in the days, weeks, months, and years that follow. And the relational health of our church family and every other church family is deeply connected to Jesus' words and Paul's teaching. Experiencing God's love is essential to us flourishing in this life. And it is equally important that we show it to each other so the name of Jesus can be heard in the world. That's what he's saying here. Both of these men, Jesus and Paul, they're both saying our love for each other is one of the greatest declarations of the truth that Jesus not only walked this earth but poured out his love For the men and women of the world, that would follow him. He gave himself up on the cross so people could see an extravagant example of love and that we would be one to the kingdom of God because of the way that he served us. And he then commands us to do the very same thing, to serve in the name of Jesus. And so Paul's teaching here, Jesus' prayer for us, for unity, I really ask you to think about whether or not they shape every waking minute of your life. These words of loving your neighbor, loving your brother and sister in Jesus, are these last words from our risen Savior that have a deep and meaningful effect on your life. If they're not, let them begin to be the catalyst to take serious the responsibility that each one of us has to show each other the same kind of love Christ showed us in his life and in his death. And that's really what today's teaching is about. How a basic set of beliefs, in this case, about God's oneness, about God's unified love, for him, for his son and his spirit, how that type of love should really create a very particular type of love in your life and in mine. It should create in us a set of hard attitudes saturated in the love of Christ that leads us to love others like he did. And when we love God like this and reflect his oneness in this place, our lives become an answer to Jesus' prayer as we make this a place that he can lead people to find his grace through. I want you to think about this for a moment. John 17 is a prayer It is Jesus speaking to his Father about the things he wants God in heaven to do on earth after he is gone. And have you ever thought about this? You know, we pray for each other and we pray for things, for sure, as a church. But have you ever thought about the fact that one of the things Jesus prayed for was for your life to reflect his love like this? It is pretty amazing to think about this. Every time you love someone in the name of Jesus, every time you serve someone in the name of Jesus, every time you pray for someone in the name of Jesus, every time you make a great sacrifice for someone in the name of Jesus, when you give up your time and your talent and your treasures, every time you do something for someone in the name of Jesus, you are a living answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17. You are one of the ways God has answered that prayer in the world. You are literally the love of Christ in the world. And so in light of that teaching today, I want to ask you to consider two two things. The first is this, and these are action steps. The first is to let yourself experience the oneness of God we spoke about earlier in our message. You cannot display the love of Jesus to the world properly if you've not received it in your own heart. You will never know the depths of the love of Jesus, how you pour that out on other people, until you have actually deeply believed and understood the love Jesus has for you. This is one of the great truths of the Easter story, that it is God's Son broken for us his body and his blood spilled so that we could know the love of God and so if you are hearing about the love of God today or maybe this is a truth you knew once in your life but you're having a hard time experiencing it let this be the day you live in the rich promise that God wants to be one with you and Jesus he wants you to be a part of this prayer and the way that that prayer begins is by you experiencing the loving unity Jesus died for you to have with him commit your heart to following Christ or at least ask the difficult questions that are keeping you from following Jesus and let us be an advocate for you on that journey secondly I want to ask you something very particular maybe you know Jesus well and you have really sensed and known his love in your life I want to ask you to do something very important today I want to ask you to begin praying like Jesus did in John 17 very specifically ask God to begin showing you some people maybe a good round number here is three Because that's just enough to make us think a little different in a more substantial way. Maybe pray, if this isn't already happening in your life, that God would show you three people whom He has put in your life that you can start loving like Christ would today. Maybe these are folks you work with. Maybe these are people in your household. Maybe these are folks you go to school with. Wherever your life is, it is not by coincidence that your life is there. If you are in Jesus, You are a vessel of light that God wants to use to serve his causes. And one of the greatest ways you can serve the causes of Jesus is by loving your neighbor. So pray that God would show you in very specific ways folks that you can love in his name, especially during this month where, for whatever reason, our culture around Christmas and Easter, they get very spiritual. They start thinking about the things of God. And this is a great opportunity for you to be one of the answers to what the things of God actually are. And so don't let Jesus' words fade away from you as you leave this place today. Share a kind word with someone this week. Serve your neighbor, bless them, do something that reveals the risen Jesus is alive and well in you. And remember, these are some of Christ's last words. So we should recognize this, that of all the things he could have said to us, he chose to remind us of how important his love is for us. In fact, his last words before he ascends into heaven, it's the Great Commission. Before he goes into heaven, he charges us with taking the love of Christ to the world, to our neighbor, to our nations and the world. It's the last thing he said before he returned to heaven. And so how important is it that we show that love to each other? And how important is it that we share it with the people of the world that we live in? Because after all, that's what this teaching and this series is all about. Week after week, we are learning that who we are in Christ must deeply shape what we do for Christ. We cannot read about the love of Jesus and experience the love of Jesus without it shaping the way we live and love the world that we are in. God loves a church that is unified in Christ's love and he loves it when the people that make up that church desire to share that same love with others. So this morning, let's pray with, with, a, with an intent and let's really figure out how God wants to use us. Let's pray and labor towards becoming a people who live in and walk worthy of the calling we all have in Christ Jesus. Paul just said this. We didn't look at these verses today, but preceding this, he said, we all have been given this amazing calling in Jesus. And one of the ways that we walk worthy of the name of Jesus is by loving each other in the way that Jesus has first loved us. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the love and unity within the body of Christ? What is he saying to you about his love in your heart? And what will you do about his love after you leave this place this morning?